All right. It is the week of February 7th, 2022, and this is the Fight Business Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Auger, and today we have a ton to cover because I was unexpectedly last week, thanks winter storm 2022 slash COVID that might not be COVID because the test was inconclusive, but the doctor thought it was probably COVID and who the heck knows. So good times, good times. Um, That all being said, lots of topics to cover. I've got a fan question to answer regarding MMA media. I am going to give my perspective and what I've seen as my time doing media obligations and going to events and talking to others I know in the media space. It's a good question. Uh, we'll tackle that at the end of the show. Save that for last. Uh, we've got to talk about fighter unions. Jake Paul went on the MMA hour, discussed creating a fighter u- union. We've been through the song and dance before, but I'm going to revisit it once again, talk about how a union is formed, uh, the possibility of that happening, but maybe most importantly, the fact that there is an opening for fighters to actually unionize. Something happened at the end of last year that I think kind of flew under the radar that I'm going to shine a spotlight on because it could very well end up being a huge deal for UFC fighters in particular and their right to organize and try to form a union. So we'll tackle that subject. Then we're going to talk about Endeavor's piracy comments. Uh, You've had some comments from Endeavor's co-head of litigation and general UFC counsel uh, regarding piracy. We've got to tackle some of that uh, just to talk about what it means from a business perspective. We're going to talk about judging. We obviously had a ridiculous scorecard for the main event last weekend. We've had a lot of you know terrible scorecards over the years. How does it affect business from the UFC side, from the fighter side? How does bad judging affect business? What can really be done to mitigate risks from bad judging? We'll talk about that as well. Uh, then we're going to talk about Nelk Boys. A lot of people asked, what are the Nelk Boys? Why are they getting involved in the UFC? Why is Data White here? Uh, you have the FAC 12 fighters getting sponsored. What the heck's going on? I'll break down why Nelk Boys is even a thing in MMA and UFC and Data, all that fun stuff. Then we need to talk about PFL signing a deal with Channel 4 over in the UK. It is a big deal, but we're going to talk about whether or not it's going to boost the viewership as they hope it will. Got some interesting thoughts there. It is a big deal, though, or could be, depending on what actually happens. Because We also need to revisit a Bellator deal that was similar and ended up being not as great as they they once made. We'll, we'll dive into that a little bit. Then We've got Joe Rogan, last but not least, causing controversy with some of his comments, some of the things he said on previous podcasts. Not going to dive into the actual controversy so much. More so, we're going to look at is that Joe Rogan controversy a liability for the UFC at all? From a business perspective, what can the UFC do to, again, mitigate the risk, Uh, make sure that they can still utilize Rogan if that's what they want to do. Is that the best strategy? We'll break all of that down as well. So I know that was a lot. These subjects will be shorter because it's super late and I'm on a tight time frame, but I will hit them as much as I can. With that in mind, let's go ahead and dive right in. All right, so the first thing we need to talk about today is fighter unionization. Yes, good old fighter unionization. We've done this song and dance before. Right, you had Bjorn Rebney with 
Velasquez and Cerrone and I think TJ Dillashaw and George St. Pierre all come out with their big announcement like, hey, we're starting a fighter union and it went absolutely nowhere. Uh, You've had more fruitful efforts or at least closer efforts rather with Leslie Smith doing Project Spearhead, trying to get signatures, Cajun Johnson also being a part of that, both of them being unceremoniously let go. And we'll circle back to Leslie Smith because she is important with where we are today with fighter unionization and how fighters could actually unionize. But you've got Jake Paul going on the MMA hour saying, yep, I bought Endeavor stock, which we tackled on last episode and how kind of that was all PR. There's no real significance there. Um, Now he's saying he's going to try and start a union for fighters and try and, you know, help them get better pay, get them help benefits, health benefits, retirement benefits, all of that stuff. Is that even actually possible? Well, let's break down how a a union even works. Let's go back to the basic blocks of unions and then apply to the UFC. So thanks to the National Labor Relations Act of 1935, and yes, I am looking off screen to make sure I'm saying that right, um, every employee has the right to unionize, organize, and, and form a union. You've got several states who have done right-to-work laws, which try to kind of upset that balance. But you have, based on that act, federal act, the right to form a union. Now, a union is formed one of two ways. One, the employer looks at a group of employees. They see they're all trying to bargain, talking to each other, and then trying to bargain individually with the employer And then the employer can kind of say, hey, maybe a union should be formed here. This is almost never used, at least not in today's age. Uh, There's no way this applies or will ever apply to the UFC. So we can kind of just throw this way out the window. The second way that a union can be formed is if the employees take the initiative to get at least 30% of the group of employees to sign a signature card saying that they want to form a union. This is pretty much what Leslie Smith was trying to do. And then you hold an election and you vote, yes, we want to have a union or no. I don't want there to be a union. And if you hit a majority vote, then an NLRB representative comes down and certifies the union and the election and you form an actual bargaining union. Now, when a union is formed, you don't always have to be a part of it. In fact, most times you're never really forced to be part of a union. Um, a good example of this is my father who is retiring soon. Uh, dad, if you're watching, congrats on the retirement. I doubt you're watching, but congrats. Um, and you know, he was part of the teacher's union as a university professor, but he didn't have to be, he could have opted out when he got hired on. He basically had the choice. Do you want to join the union or yes or no? And if you join the union, you've got to pay dues, you've got to vote and, and, If they go on strike, you've got a strike, all that stuff. Um, If you don't, well, you don't have the same protections, but you also don't have to necessarily do some of the things the union does and go along with the union's agreements, right? Because the union will bargain for you. So that's essentially how a union is created. Now, there are caveats to unions, specifically employees versus independent contractors. If you're an independent contractor, you can still form a union, right? You can all band together and try to negotiate as one. However, you are not protected 
under the same provisions of the 1935 Act that employees are. For example, a employer cannot interfere with a union, union election, right? Um, and you can't be fired if you go on strike um, for a particular, that's an unlawful firing, right? There are particulars that protect employees if you're part of a union. Those don't apply to independent contractors. If you're part of a group, a, a union of independent contractors that decides to strike, an employer can just say, yeah, you know what, you, I'm going to fire you. And you can't really do anything about it. This is crucial because fighters are classified as independent contractors, not as employees. So if a bunch of fighters formed a union and went on strike and said, nope, we're not fighting, the UFC could just say, okay, great, you are all fired and released from your contract. Uh, I am now going to hire a bunch of new people, and that's that. So circling back to Leslie Smith, right? She was let go in a very odd way where Lena Landsberg, I believe it was Lena Landsberg? No, no, Aspen Ladd. I think it was Aspen Ladd. Um, was over the weight limit for their fight and she refused to fight. And so the UFC paid Leslie Smith her show and win money and said, your contract is done. It's fulfilled and released her. She argued that said, that's not how this works. And essentially appealed to the national labor relations board that, Hey, I've been fired unjustly or released unjustly. We should be classified as employees, not as independent contractors. And at the time, her claim and, and her appeal to have that happen was denied. Now, this was during a very different administration. And in U.S. politics, for those of you that are not aware, when you have a right-leaning administration in, they're usually anti-union, and a left administration, pretty pro-union. So once Biden was elected and there were changes made at the NLRB, Essentially, the NLRB said, hey, if you've had claims denied by the previous administration, you can appeal them to us and we'll review them again and see what the situation, you know, see if they should have been accepted. I don't know if Leslie Smith did that. I have been meaning to reach out to her to kind of talk to her a little bit more based on some conversations we had in the past. Um, I know she was looking at doing that at one point, but I know she's got a lot going on. So, um, you know, it's one of those things where I feel that that opened the door a little bit, but it didn't necessarily was a slam dunk by any means, right? That, oh, if Leslie brings her complaint back, it will be accepted. They will be classified as employees. You're good to go. But here's the interesting thing that happened at the end of 2021, December 27th to be exact, that I think kind of flew under the radar a little bit. And that's that the National Labor Relations Board has invited briefs regarding the independent contractor standard. Specifically, this is more targeted at, I mean, DoorDash, Uber, those things, right? But it they, they essentially said, and you can find this, at nlrb.gov news outreach, uh, NLRB invites briefs regarding independent contractor standard that the National Labor Relations Board invited parties and 
Amikai to to submit and I submit briefs addressing whether the board should reconsider its standard for determining the in, independent contractor status of workers. In 2019, in Super Shuttle. DFW Inc., the board overruled the prior standard for determining independent contractor status, which was set forth in FedEx home delivery in 2014. In today's notice, the board invites the filing of briefs to afford the parties and interested people the opportunity to address the following questions. One, should the board adhere to the independent contractor standard in Super Shuttle DFW Inc. 367 NLRB number? And then two, if not, what standard should be replaced? Should the board return to the standard in FedEx home delivery, either in its entirety or with modifications? Now, without going too deep into those two cases, because I'm short on time, so I'm not going to, you know, dive dive deep into all of that, we will get right to the heart of it. What they're asking with that notice is... Hey, in layman's terms, they're saying, hey, in 2019, a board that was put in place by a particularly anti-union administration changed the standard of what we might say is an independent contractor and affected and, and really continued to perpetrate the gig economy which is the DoorDash driver, the Uber driver, the Instacart people, right? And the gig economy that thrives in many states um, where you go out, you're, you know, you're an independent contractor. You are not an employee despite all of the things you have to do, the ways you have to do it, et cetera, et cetera. The previous standard that was in the FedEx home delivery would make these people employees, they would have been classified as employees. Should we return to that? Or should we return to some modified version of that? And if there are several, again, presentations stating, yes, we need to return to this, and there's a loud enough voice, chances are the NLRB will really look at switching back to either that standard or that standard with some modifications. But if they switch back to anything that resembles the FedEx ruling in 2014, you're looking at all Uber drivers becoming employees, all DoorDash, you know, drivers, employees. Any type of gig economy worker could be classified as employee. That could bleed over into the UFC, right? If that standard gets put back in place or some version of that standard that's close to it, you're really looking at a an opportunity for someone in the UFC, whether that's, or, or previously in the UFC, um, but most likely they would need to be in the UFC to really make it stick since they would be a technical employee or they'd be fighting for employee status. They could go and say, look, we should be a part of this as well. And based on the standard, they might actually win. Depending again, what the actual standard is put in place, but it could open the door. I'm not saying if you go back to even the 2014 standard that that happens, right? Fighters have been labeled as independent contractors for longer than 2014. It's not a big surprise. Um, But if you have the NLRB make that determination, 
and then you have a complaint a fighter saying yes we need to examine this which wouldn't be far-fetched given the current lawsuits going on right um any fighters that are in support of that would gladly you know step up you know as long as they i say that and i need to be cautious with my words here that's why i'm kind of fumbling a little bit is there would be fighters in support of it how loud they would be how it would all work i'm not sure but I am sure that there are fighters that would support unionization. And if the NLRB did change the classification of an independent contractor to resemble something that's closer to the 2014 FedEx ruling, they could take it and run with it. And it could become an issue. Now it would get dragged out. It's not something that's going to happen overnight, et cetera, et cetera. But it does technically open the door. And with Jake Paul putting a lot of pressure on it, if the NLRB made that change while Paul is still around talking and telling people to do this, it could really push some fighters to to do this. Now, they've just invited for briefs. That doesn't mean they've made any decisions. But the fact that they're asking for these briefs is kind of tipping their hand a little bit. Because why else would you be asking for this? Why in the world would you be saying, hey, we'd like to just, you know, see a bunch of case studies that, you know, they tell us we shouldn't adhere to the standard of super shuttle DFW that was was put in place in 2019. Maybe we should go back to 2014. And if you don't want us to go all the way back to 2014, what should we do? Should we do a modification so it's kind of like 2014 with some caveats so everybody's more happy so we don't hurt the gig workers that want to stay gig workers? Like, eh, let's see some case studies. That's my interpretation of this. Where it all goes, I don't know. Will Jake Paul still be around kind of hounding and shining a spotlight? I don't know as well. But that does open the door a little bit. Ultimately, it's not going to be Paul that gets this done. It's going to need to be the fighters or a group of fighters that comes forward and does this. But Paul could amplify their voices. He's very good at that. And he has been very good at getting more mainstream attention on these issues, even if they're not really changing. Right? So there is a slight opportunity there. But you still need a lot of hurdles to be past before you get to that particular place. And you've also got, you know, conflicting views on should a union be formed? Should the Ali Act be passed? Independent contractor start status be maintained? You, you've got different beliefs in that all over the sport. But it's interesting that the NLRB is inviting briefs to discuss whether or not the standard should be changed and if it does get changed, and I'll let you know because I'm keeping an eye on this, and I'm sure others will be as well, if it does get changed, it could very well affect everything that's been going on with the UFC, uh, with the antitrust lawsuits, all of that. Because if all of a sudden the UFC has to treat their fighters as employees, has to give them health insurance, has to give them retirement, all of that, it's, it's going to change the game. It would affect so many things. It's not even funny. So, again, slight, slight creak, slight creak of the door. Nothing to get 
super excited about, nothing to lose your mind over, but important that you know it's there because this more than anything shows that the current NLRB would very well take a look at Leslie Smith's complaint and probably, in my mind, give a different opinion than they did before, or at least be more likely to give a different opinion. That much I'm sure of. So we'll see what happens. But there you go. Fighter unionization. Not going to be Jake Paul. It's going to be the NLRB and fighters getting together and getting it done. Next thing I want to briefly cover here is Endeavor's comments on piracy. Um, So Richie McKnight, who's the general counsel at the UFC and deputy general counsel slash co-head of litigation for Endeavor, told Sports Pro's Streamtime podcast that existing methods to remove illegal streams just weren't good enough. Just weren't good enough. Um, An exact quote here is, it's not that social media platforms, broadcasters, and others haven't had an answer to piracy. It's just that the methods are slower than what you need for a live event. A typical UFC event will go for seven to eight hours, but the main card, which most people are interested in, is only a couple of hours, and the main event which is the one fight people really want to see might go 15 minutes. These platforms have not had to fight piracy with the degree of speed and immediacy. If we don't get streams taken down within hours, preferably minutes, it could be enough to dissuade people from purchasing the event. Someone knows McGregor is fighting and they can stream for 15 minutes and see the McGregor fight. That might be enough to keep them from making the purchase. In this article, again, is at sports pro media um, and also has a link to the podcast in the article. McKnight basically says, you know, they're trying to have DCMA reform to bring it up to to date to, uh, you know, take stronger measures for anti-piracy, specifically through big tech, right? Um, you know, getting getting providers like Google and Facebook and other people to take things down with immediate precision rather than yep an event is reported at the start of the events reported as being an illegal stream after it's reviewed it takes a couple hours then it's taken down from a business perspective and from endeavor side yeah i mean it makes sense that they want this right it's not shocking at all that they're fighting for this given that streaming's out there i i do not sail the high speed seas, so to speak, arg matey. That's not me. But I do know of people that do. And from my understanding and talking with them, it's relatively easy to sail the high seas. Um, it's, you know, I, I have found places where streams happen. I've followed people I know saying, yep, go here, go here, go here. And yeah, they're out there. And they're not that hard to find. Um, they're really not. If you do enough digging, you'll, you'll find it. You have to have tech savvy to a certain degree, but it's not not really hard to do that. I think these comments, coupled with the rise in pay-per-view prices, signal a risk that the UFC acknowledges, and that is that when you're putting on events that are top heavy, which the UFC has tended to do over the past year, especially, 
it's less likely someone is going to pay for a pay-per-view when you continually raise the prices, at least from a hardcore perspective, right? Casuals, where you get those extra buys, as we've talked, almost always comes down to the main event or co-main event. And even here, McKnight seemingly acknowledges his concern is the main event. It's not the four fights preceding it, preceding it. He's worried about the main event of a McGregor fight, which, yes, of course, McGregor's that. But it's not just McGregor. It's every pay-per-view we've seen through Paul Giff's analysis, which he's defended quite well, by the way, even though he forgets my name on show money. So thank you, Dr. Gift. But <laughs> just kidding, of course. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, his analysis, which he defended very, very well, um, if you haven't seen the back and forth on defense, it's and you're a nerd like me, it's amazing to see some of the words that have been put in an academic setting is just like, I mean, real fisticuffs stuff, you know, gloves off. Uh, but we know that it's the main event that draws the majority of, of the excess buys. And the co-main event, yes, can be a factor. If you've got a big name fighter somewhere on the main card, they can draw right? You got Brock Lesnar at UFC 200. He's going to be the main reason that is drawing. It's not Amanda Nunes or Misha Tate. It's Lesnar. Um, but it's usually one or two fighters that people tune in for. So when you're looking at pay-per-view buys being stopped and, and people kind of streaming, Although McKnight focuses on the main event and that's the biggest issue, there there is a risk that several hardcore fans that have been watching for a long time and might know where to find these streams or know the community and get access to these streams might then say, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and stream this because I'm not paying $75 for a crappy card with you know a good main event and, a, and an okay co-main event. I'm not going to pay $75 for that. And they might stream it and they might show that to casuals, right? Because the majority of, of, I don't want to say the majority because I don't know about that, but there is definitely a large subset of customers for the UFC that are in that weird semi-space where they like to tune in for a couple of fights and then don't tune in regularly and probably have friends that are more entrenched hardcore fans, right? When, when you've got Lawrence Epstein talking about seven different tiers of fans, there's certainly one that signifies the semi-casual buy of like, yeah, I want to see Brock Lesnar fight. Yeah, I want to see maybe Nganu or Adesanya fight. Um and the rest, eh, kind of whatever. And they're probably, during those fights, going to hit up the one or two friends they have that are hardcore MMA fans, right? They've probably got hardcore MMA fans in their orbit. If the hardcore fans are like, I'm not paying $75 for this, forget it, I'm going to stream. And then they take that semi-casual buyer and say, dude, just come over to my place and we'll stream it or go here and stream it instead. A semi-casual fan is going to be much more likely than to never purchase a card again. Right? If I only care about watching two or three fighters that may happen a couple times a year, I'm much more 
to never pay the $75 for the whole car because I'm not going to know who else is fighting or what's going on and all that stuff. I'm more likely to go to a bar or I'm going to just be like, you know what, I'm going to just go ahead and go to this streaming site that my hardcore friend told me exists. And that can spread quickly and take a big chunk of revenue out from pay-per-view buys. And I think they're anticipating here that that's going to happen, which I do not blame them. You've risen pay-per-view buys quite a bit uh, in two years. And you're doing top-heavy cards. And a lot of that, again, comes down to Endeavor trying to get the most money it possibly can to help pay its debt obligations. The UFC is their crown jewel asset. They are, are doing everything they can to keep boosting the UFC's profits. This is a way to do it. Now, again, as I've mentioned, ESPN made the call on on raising the prices and all of that. But as I believe John and uh, John Nash, Paul Gift, and, and Jason Cruz talked about on Show Money, and upon further reflection, the UFC probably does get some kickback in contracts. Um, it's not their call. The UFC doesn't really get to make the call here, but I do believe that they probably get a slight kickback for any price increases. But ultimately, what this all boils down to is kind of the UFC looking for new ways to stop illegal streaming so that they don't have more people taking away pay-per-view buys. Because the lower that number goes, the more money ESPN probably makes off of the deal with the increased price. I'm sure they get the biggest benefit out of it. But it also hurts or could hurt the UFC's bottom line if enough people are streaming fights like Nunez versus Felicia Spencer, right? Which reportedly did under 100K. Anything that that doesn't break that minimum guaranteed threshold that ESPN pays them, that's hurting the UFC's bottom line and taking away potential profits, which Endeavor, again, cost-cutting mode, got to cut all the costs we can, do top-heavy cards for the UFC, and make sure that we are getting the most revenue we can to pay off our debt. So not surprised by these comments at all. Expect for them to push harder for more litigation and more in intervention from big tech like Facebook uh, or Meta now, as he calls it. Yeah, it's Meta, but I'm going to call it Facebook. Um, Twitter. Google, all those guys, they're going to keep doing this. And they're not the only ones. I'm sure, you know, as ratings drop for other particular sports, you've got a lot of people saying we need to overhaul DCMA. Um, we've we've got to make these things a bigger deal. You've had a revision of DCMA not that long ago, but they want it even tighter. But that's to help cut and mitigate their risk. That's really what this is. So I don't think anything's going to change anytime soon, but don't expect Endeavor and the UFC to stop pushing for this type of stuff. I, I expect Richie to be gung-ho about this until something changes, which, again, who knows when that'll be. All right, next thing we're going to talk about here is very brief, but caught my eye. You have Modelo signing ESPN UFC announcer John Anik. This is an article from the Sports Business Journal, um, February 3rd. Modelo has signed ESPN UFC announcer John Anik to endorsement deal to help promote a new golden ticket contest it is running in conjunction with DraftKings. 
uh, talks about the promotion. You can win. It's a pretty sweet deal. You can win uh, floor seats to 10 UFC pay-per-view events in the U.S. for a full year, along with meeting Anik uh, at the Apex facility in Vegas. That sounds pretty great. Um, but more important to this podcast is you had quotes from Rene Ramos, who is the Constellation Brands VP slash field lifestyle and exper- experiential marketing, <laughs> sorry, um, saying what you've got, uh, yada, yada, right. Modelo is brewed with fighting spirit. And what that means to us as we think about the UFC is elevating, innovating the fan experience. Talks about strategically and culturally connecting with fans. The key thing here is that they're looking for the brewer to connect in a new way, in a new differentiated way to UFC fans. And the partnership casts a greater net for UFC fans to win the promotion by partnering with DraftKings. Modelo has become, and this is not a quote, this is just from the article, but Modelo has become one of the top selling beer brands in the US. And Ramos said the UFC quote, has been a key driver in helping achieve growth. The brand last year renewed for an additional three years with a payment to the UFC that is in the low eight figures annually. Its assets include branding within the UFC octagon and its rights are across the US and Guam and include hard seltzer. Modelo has also launched its first corporate social responsibility activation with UFC last year with a program that refurbishes gyms across the U.S. That last statement there, and sorry, I had to read through the article again real quick on the fly, but that last bit is is the insight I wanted to hit on. I've been hammering home the past month or so about how sponsorships are the new key focus for the UFC in terms of growth. Yes, other markets will come. I have no doubt one day they're going to really push for a move into India, um, potentially Indonesia and more of Southeast Asia because there's a potential there as those countries uh, continue their growth and continue to have more purchasing power. But it's clear right now that they've extended themselves in a way where going into a brand new market and putting down the foundations and making the deals that they need to get the return on investment that they need out of those new markets is going to take too long, right? If they want to keep up the type of revenue growth that they've had over the past several years. Sponsorships are their new avenue to do this. You've got crypto.com paying a ridiculous amount of money. You've got all these other sponsors doing things. Modelo is paying low eight figures annually for the next three years. Eight figures. So that's at least $10 million, right? Yes, yes. And it's branding within the UFC octagon, including you know the big center Modelo and all of the commercials and all of that, and a corporate responsibility project. That $10 million for your logo annually to be on UFC stuff. It's no wonder that other promotions are money from investors, right? This this reminds me of some of the, you know, advertising craze during the 
dot-com bubble, which I was too young to experience, but I, I mean, at least in a meaningful way. Um, but you know, I, I've read and researched a lot about it and, and similarities in the market that you might see in other times. And it's one of those things where advertising is everything. I mean, that's, that's what the internet's become. That's why you've got the kind of journalism that we have where it's all about clicks and it's all about getting people in front of the ads and all this stuff. Sponsorships is the new target easily. And as the UFC continues to reach out for new sponsors and move into new markets and do these things, sponsorships are going to play a, a pivotal role because that's the type of deal where you can sit in a room, have a couple of conversations through, you know, dinner, drinks, a couple of conference room conversations, and you can get the deal signed and done. And then you're good to go for, again, three years. You're just good to go to put somebody's logo on your octagon. Not really high maintenance, not really a big ordeal unless you're monster. And then we go down the whole monster energy path. But even then, right, you're you're talking about in general, what is you're selling your brand and getting somebody to pay you ludicrous sums of money to advertise their brand on your brand. It, it's so low cost. If you have a good salesman and you have a strong brand and, and good marketing, you can pitch it, you can get the deal done over a couple conversations and that's it. And then that's just money flowing in that you get as fixed revenue. Technically variable if you look at a long enough time frame, but annually, right? That's a fixed income source. Like anything else, like the ESPN deal. That's huge. Eight figures. Think about it. Eight figures for all that Modelo stuff. The official beer of the UFC, all that stuff. $10 million. Low eight figures, so it could be more than that. Could be 11, could be 12, who knows. But we know at least $10 million a year for that. That's why sponsorships are so important. That's why I've been harping on them. It's it's definitely the future where the UFC is going to go in the short term. Long term, they still need to grow up into other markets, get other market sponsorship, other country sponsorships, right? You just keep growing. You build out your brand, continue to do that. But that is the key right now that they need to keep up that revenue growth. This article tells you that pretty much point blank. All right, judging. This is also going to be a shorter topic once because I'm low on time and also because you're going to hear about MMA judging from everybody under the sun. Um, right. It's it's a very hot topic, especially after the split decision last weekend from Hermanson and Strickland. From a business perspective, how much of a liability is bad judging and what can the UFC do to mitigate it? UFC can't do a ton at least directly. They do have relationships with multiple athletic commissions, right? We've seen Nevada, now Arizona most recently pulling their fighter play disclosures. Um, that's a lot of politicking by the UFC. They do have those relationships, but who gets assigned to judge a fight is 
based on the athletic commission. And I still have, if you haven't watched it, it's one of my favorite interviews. And I think one of the most important interviews I did early on, I think fight business podcast five or six still should be on the body locks channel. Um, where I talked with the head of the Kansas, Kansas athletic commission. And we just, we talked about MMA judging and how things need to improve. He talked about, you know, wanting open scoring and showing, you know, the benefits of that fantastic dude. Um, fantastic insight into the world of MMA judging. And what I did at one point, and I never actually got the article out for the body lock because things kind of shuddered with them before I could, but I, I did some shadow judging, right? Where I didn't actually do it in person, did it more through the TV screen remotely, which was interesting of itself. But then I got to be a part of some of the meetings afterwards. So just so you know, at least the Kansas Athletic Commission, I'm not sure if this applies to every state because every state's going to be different. But they have, you know, everybody kind of talk about stuff before the fight and kind of, you know, level set together. And then at the end of the fights, they have a debrief. And they talk about any controversial decision or where anyone went a particular way different than another person they wanted to gauge insight into why someone made their decisions and talk it out and kind of learn from it and say, Hey, here's what's going on. I cannot stress enough how eye opening that conversation was because what those particular judges did, I did it two times and what those particular judges saw and what I saw where we disagreed were night and day. And I never understood it until we had those conversations and it suddenly opened up my eyes because a, a lot of judges, at least based on what I've heard and then being part of those conversations care, care deeply about things like sound. They, they kind of judge that as part of the impact piece um, they, they really are in a narrow field of vision where if somebody is on the other side of the cage and down on the ground, right, they can't see every little blow. They can't see every, they just see kind of guys and they see top versus bottom. And I think most importantly, they're all trained by different people or from different kind of schools of people. That's important. Not everyone has gone through John McCarthy's training course. Not everyone has, done all of that, especially sitting judges that are through athletic commissions, right? Some of these, some of these guys are appointed through more boxing standards and have learned the ropes on how to judge combat sports, including MMA through boxing guys makes a big difference, makes a huge difference. And I'll never forget having a conversation where judge dissented deeply compared to the other and and i believe i was um or the other two and i was with the other two judges and when they were talking it out they were basically saying it came down to a school of thought thing where those judges say well no i've you know i've been judged or, or taught that you know that impact strike should you know kind of make a difference here and that's what you got to look for and the other judge was saying no you know, it's, it's the volume was 
far more overwhelming. That should negate the damage. And it was a close round, mind you. This wasn't like a Hermanson Strickland scenario. Um, This was a close round that we were debating. But it, it does play a big factor. So, yes, you can go after judges. I've gone after judges at home probably when I shouldn't have have, and I apologize if I've taken it too far. I don't think I have too much. Um, but it, it makes a big difference how you are trained and where the fights happen. Right? Texas is, is where I live. I would love to have more fights in Austin. Love it, love it, love it. At the same time, We've had multiple fights in Texas where the judging has not been the best. It's been better lately. I've been happy about that. A lot of a lot of events over in Houston, including this upcoming weekend's event, where it's been better. But, um, you know, it is what it is. But, again, from a – with that all being said, with all that background knowledge, what can a business do to do any type of risk mitigation here? There isn't a ton. You kind of have to indirectly say, man, maybe I don't like that judge. They need to go. Um, We've we've seen White do this and kind of get certain refs blackballed from UFC events, right? Uh, Yamasaki is a big one. Um, You've had, I forget the other, the name of the guy who, there was one ref where, again, got semi-blackballed that's escaping me. Um, I'm not sure why, but it's politicking but ultimately still up to the commission's decision the commission can just say yeah that's great dana we don't care and uh we're we're gonna keep these judges in this guy and who knows if they're doing that we don't know about the discussions we've seen dana and uh, ufc fighters say some judges are terrible they need to go they need to be you had adelaide bird having her whole situation in boxing as well but she's back on the circuit right um Politics work both ways. If there's politics internally going on at the commission, they override outside influences. They always will. Anytime you've got internal politics versus external politics, internal almost always wins in a situation with a government entity. Almost always. Because it's not like, hey, we need that client's business. It's like, no, the client has to use our business. We, ha- we get to decide these judges and these refs. They can't do anything about it, technically. Uh, yeah, they could say they'll never come back here. They could do whatever it could cost us. It's whatever. I'm a government worker. I'm going to do. And I'm not saying that's your a, a generalization of all government workers. But again, big difference between commercial versus government, uh, internal, external politics. Other than that, you can push for better teaching and better um, initiatives that you can lead, right? You could work with John McCarthy or um, Jason Herzog or other refs to create programs and then teach referees and kind of, you know, help athletic commissions select certain people, which is again, politicking, but through standard criteria. And and you can take that extra leap, but it, it gets tough. In any business, government external forces are the the hardest to deal with because they usually can't be, you know, just let's have some conversations, let's politic. And there's usually strict laws in place that limit you from 
finding a way around those pressures. Depends on the government, right? Uh, depends on what is actually happening and, and all of that, but it's it's hard to navigate. The best thing you can do is A, create an initiative and try and reach out to government entities uh, and, and do things more more like what Kansas is doing already and work with them to make the sport better and that's hopefully be more shaped in a way that doesn't hurt your business or B, you can not go to those States. You can just say, yep, nope, sorry. Texas has terrible judging, never going back, which I don't think they'll do. Cause again, they're back in Houston. I think more likely they might look at not going back to California as much with the payouts and hydration and all that stuff. But that's, that's really all you can do from that standpoint. How it affects your business is it can be a game changer, right? I mean, if if your biggest stars get screwed out of a decision, you can give them immediate rematch and you can try and, you know, push them and you can get on the mic and say that judging was terrible. We need to do a rematch, all this stuff. But it still hurts a little bit, especially if then that star goes on to lose in a big way next time out, which you never know how it's going to go. But it could, it can be a factor. But as the UFC has moved to more fixed revenue base and as more promotions, well, we'll get to more promotions in a second. UFC is a little bit more immune to this because of the fixed revenue base. They have lost the need for the big pay-per-view stars. They've got fixed revenue. They're okay. The other promotions though, that's where it really does affect them. It, it if you're Bellator and you're really riding the AJ McKee train and he gets screwed out of a terrible judging decision where he clearly won and he was decided as lost because two judges messed up, that hurts you big time because you're much more variable revenue type business. UFC, it hurts you, but again, you've got the ESPN deal. You've got eight-figure Modelo sponsorships. You're okay. Bellator, PFL? right? Some of these other promotions, one, it's a big, big issue. And that's probably why you don't see the UFC making as much of a fuss. They don't care, right? They don't necessarily need that fix. If anything, it's kind of a slight advantage to them based on their fixed revenue. But again, that's all you can really do are those two things. There's not much else besides not going to a location where you have to adhere to that commission's judges and rules, um, or or you work with them to create initiatives that they hope that you hope they adopt, because you can't force them to. It's part of the regulatory body, right? You can politic, you can you know, and there are ways to politic, and the UFC, of course, is very good at them, so they don't have to worry about them as much, but. That's, you know, Bellator, PFL, they probably don't have those same resources or those same connections. It's going to be harder, going to be harder to get that stuff done. So all you can really do is is one of those two things and, and hope that judging gets better. Knock on wood that it does overall because it needs to, honestly. All right, going to knock out the Nelk Boys one real quick because my internet is acting all wonky and uh, been going on for a bit. So <laughs> Nelk Boys... Long and short of it is this. Nelk Boys and the UFC have entered into a partnership where 
the UFC will sign fighters and they'll be sponsored by the Nelk Boys and help elevate Nelk Boys brand so that now they're repping fighters um, at a level of a global brand. And again, a little bit of background on the Nelk Boys. They're YouTubers who have millions of views, millions of followers. Uh, They did a lot of prank videos initially. Now they're sponsoring people. They're trying to kind of build this I don't want to say agency necessarily, but they're really, they're going out and trying to sponsor people if they're good at things. Um, they're still doing their videos, of course, but that's really their their brand is to be these kind of YouTube influencers. And so by partnering with the UFC, this gives them a global big name brand in sports. And the UFC, it allows them to now target a brand new market rather than geographical. You're looking at a new age range market, Gen Z specifically. If you look at what Jake Paul was able to do with boxing, I think this will work at least modestly because even if the Nelk boys are just a fraction of as popular as Jake Paul is in that generation, it should convert some of them into at least trying and watching the sport and, and viewing it once or twice. They may not accept it. They may reject the product, say, nope, I don't really want this. It's not my thing. But just getting their eyes on it is probably the biggest struggle from a customer acquisition point from the UFC, I would imagine. So this is an easy way into that. This allows the UFC to do that through a trusted source, right? Talk about marketing and promoting um, your brand a couple of episodes ago. Best way to do it is through word of mouth promotion that people trust. If people really like Nelk Boys and now they're touting, touting the UFC, they're much more likely to try it and see if they like it. Whereas otherwise, yeah, maybe they've never heard of it or they know the UFC. I'm sure they've heard of the UFC and they've heard of fighting, but they might not ever, they might say, ah, I don't think I'm going to like it. But all of a sudden the Nelk Boys are into it. Well, let me check it out. And that at least gets their eyes on the product if only to make the decision to accept or reject it. But that's crucial. That moves, you know, if you're talking about your traditional sales funnel, that moves leads from cold to at least lukewarm or down the funnel of the next lead qualifying process, gives you more qualified leads. And that's what you need to do to continue to grow and build build customers. So that's really what the Nelk Boys partnership is. It's kind of a, hey, here's, we saw what Jake Paul did. Let's get these famous YouTube influencers. They seem like they could be a good fit with our brand. And let's go ahead and push it. You saw Dana kind of do this with Robbie Fox, and he still does, right, in terms of a media perspective and Barstool. This isn't shocking that Dana has now seen Nelkwood and say, yeah, I want to kind of do business with them. Let's go ahead and set things up and and go that route. So that's what the Nelk boys are. They are essentially just another sponsorship opportunity through the UFC, although instead of getting money, I don't think they're getting paid by the Nelk Boys to do this. Uh, They're really more getting marketing, free marketing to a customer segment that they most likely had trouble reaching. That's what the Nelk Boys is. All right, last topic I have to cover, and I will do it pretty quickly here just because of time. Joe Rogan. Again, not going to talk about the specifics of the controversy and all of that. That's not what the show is about. You want to hear my opinions on that? Uh, more than welcome to follow me on Twitter and figure it out or or see me on other shows. But what this show is about is 
the business side of it. So we know Joe Rogan has this controversy going on. Um, we know that there's backlash from fair amount of mainstream media that Spotify has said they're going to not deplatform him, um, but that it's causing waves throughout the mainstream media community. If I'm the UFC, I've now got to look at this from a liability perspective. And the question is, how much of a liability is this? And do we need to do anything? Right? When you're looking at evaluating a risk, um, you, you do it with several different stages, right? First, you've got to kind of gauge the likelihood of the risk occurring as well as the severity when you're prepping for a risk that may occur. When you have a risk that is currently out there, which this is, you've got to look at what the best strategy is. Do you want to take an avoidance strategy, a mitigation strategy, a full-on you know, um, resolution strategy? Lots of different ways you can tackle this. In this particular scenario, right, Rogan is now a part-time announcer where he's only really doing pay-per-views and not even all of the pay-per-views, I don't think, and is not nearly as much of the face of one of the faces of the UFC, right? When it used to be him and, and Mike Goldberg, he was doing every event. He was the face of the UFC. It was a whole thing. He has already kind of wound down that. He's doing it part-time. He's much more known for his podcast and everything else he's doing now. That plays in huge favor of, of the severity of this risk. Where does this come back to the UFC? How does it impact the brand? In the internal customer base, I don't think it impacts them much at all. You've got a lot of people that I would say are MMA fans, the majority of MMA fans, probably listen to Joe Rogan or are in alignment with a lot of his views or are in alignment with the side of this isn't a big controversy, it's whatever. I'd say a strong majority of MMA fans are probably like that, right? So, yeah, you're going to have some fans who are upset and say, oh, that's crazy. But you're not going to have people boycotting your product internally. So, okay. If, if it's not going to affect your customer base a significant amount, then don't have to worry about that side. Um, but whenever evaluating a threat, you also have to look at external pressure and forces, right? So a much more important key indicator to look at here is how is mainstream media and the mainstream public in general handling the situation? Because if you had a major backlash where you could start to lose sponsorships, you could start to lose and feel pressure from ESPN or Disney or, um, you know, any, any other entity that you want to have a partnership with where they're coming in and saying, look, Rogan is kind of a liability here, or you need to pull Rogan because it's not what we want to be associated with. That's a problem. It's, it's not been going on long, right? Especially the latest one. First you had the COVID stuff and now you've got the um, episodes being pulled for the use of a racial slur several times. Um, 
this is a scenario where so far it seems to be a a mix of reactions, right? You've got a fair amount of people saying it's terrible and he should be deplatformed and this is ridiculous. You've got a lot of people standing up for him saying it's whatever, his apology was sincere, it's fine. Um, I don't think it's at a point in my perspective where the UFC is probably feeling much pressure. There's probably a little bit, right? There's probably some concern from various partnerships who have a certain brand image and they might be a little worried. Um, They may, for example, I, I think in this particular scenario, given its fervor, I think that in a worst case scenario, you're looking at a brand maybe saying, hey, maybe don't advertise us on the prelims of a pay-per-view like you have a obviously anik or whoever um is is the play-by-play is reading out advertisements at specific times there might be a scenario where they don't want to be associated with a rogan broadcast where they say hey look advertise us on the fight nights or these other places or not on a pay-per-view I can't imagine that's the case because pay-per-view, especially main cards of bigger pay-per-view stars are probably, you know, a bigger deal. But um, I think that's about the maximum level it could get to. I don't think it's there. I don't think it's anywhere near there right now or that necessarily will get there. But I think that's probably the extent of what you're going to see. Just because UFC's brand is, is very much in line with the crowd that is defending Rogan and most of their partnerships will will toe that line, right? If you if you get in bed with the UFC at this point and you don't do your research on things that Dana White has said and done on particular stances that fighters have, you're you probably you know have bigger things to worry about than Rogan's controversy somehow coming back to the UFC. Yes, it is mainstream media attention which has a bigger impact for sure on your brand but i i don't foresee it as something that you should be completely blindsided by i will say that so that all being said i don't think there's any real risk here to the ufc first you're going to get is maybe one or two sponsors saying like don't have him read out our names I, and again, even that scenario, the more I'm thinking about it, seems pretty implausible. But I, I don't expect them to do anything in terms of a sanction, at least right now, or cutting him from from being a commentator, right? I can't see that happening. Um, if it continues to escalate, if fighters start to get involved, right? Um, let's say, you know, You've got Adesanya fighting this weekend. Let's say Adesanya wins and Rogan goes interview in the cage and then Adesanya calls him out and it's a whole big thing. Well, if that continues to escalate things and cause more issues, then maybe you see pressure from sponsorships and external you know, partnerships really saying, okay, we've got to pull them. But internally, I don't expect any pushback. And even externally, I think you're probably limited to... Worst case scenario, a, hey, just make sure he stays in line and a conversation with somebody at the UFC, right? A brand 
a, a global brand ambassador basically answering a phone call saying, Hey, yeah, I know we're, we're on it. We're talking to him. He's really sincere. It's all good. And then kind of that being it. So we'll see what happens as this continues. But my guess is this dies down and this isn't much of a liability for the UFC. All right. And that is it for today's episode. Appreciate you guys sticking with me. Um, We did have one fan question I did not get to. Scott, I am so sorry. I promise I will get to it next week. We are short on time. I wanted to make sure to get all that other stuff in. Um, But we will do the fan question next week. I do apologize. It's, It's time constraints right now with some crazy work stuff going on. Me still being a little bit sick, all that fun stuff. Um, but again, thank you so much for watching. If you're on YouTube, uh, make sure you hit the like and subscribe button. If you haven't subscribed, not just for my stuff, but you know, sure dog right now is really having a bit of a renaissance with content and you know, the site is completely new. If you've, you remember old sure dog site, go to suredog.com right now and check out the new site. Cause it looks amazing. Never, never thought the day would come. I'm so happy. Um, if you are listening on anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, where have you. Always appreciate you guys. I'm trying to get better about uploading it on a more regular basis when I'm getting it. At this point, because of the schedule of, of things that are happening, may end up uh, you know, seeing that stuff a little bit earlier than the video one, but we'll see as time progresses. We're still trying to get into a rhythm. Lots of amazing, exciting stuff going on at SureDog, but of course causes some, uh, you know, t- causes some difficulties in getting things all organized so appreciate you guys for listening love you guys uh appreciate you sticking with me through the break sorry about that unexpected break i always try and let you guys know at least by thursday if we're not going to have an fbp but we will have more exciting topics next week including scott's question which i'm going to do first so i make sure i have time for it um if you have any other questions you'd like me to answer, send them in through Twitter, uh, in the comment section, either on the SureDog link or on YouTube. Let me know. Love you guys. And until I talk to you next time, get that money. <laughs>